I hope you have been appreciating the brightness of the screen this morning. Some time ago, it came to my attention that some of our folks have difficulty reading and seeing what's on the screen when they sit in the back, and I, I suggested they move forward, but that wasn't well, well received. But I do want to acknowledge this morning that we have replaced the old rear screen projector, low light projector with a beautiful new LED screen that is sharp and clear and crisp. And that this gift is a gift. From time to time, we receive gifts from families in loving memory of families of loved ones, and it makes possible for us to make improvements like this that aren't in the budget. And so this is not tithe money, this is gift money in memory of our dear friend Dan Doctorian. His sweet wife Nora and family members and friends collected their resources, made contributions to PASNAS in hopes of a project that would make a difference in the congregation, in hopes that it would reflect sort of Dan's joyful, jubilant life and his creativity and all that was just part of what oozed out of Dan when he was with us. And this beautiful LED screen certainly does that. And so we express our appreciation to Nora and your family and friends. And uh, I know Dan's brother's here in the back with us today, Sam. And so I just am so grateful for bequests that make that possible. The bequest from another family helped with the cost of insulation. The bequest from that family also made possible the prayer room. And so. It is a special thing when people remember the church as a way to care for the memory of their loved ones. For it is a good use of the possessions that have been entrusted to them. So thank you, Nora. Please express our appreciation to your family. Pastor Brad said to me this morning, if you can't read that screen from the back row, turn in your car keys. <laughs> His judgment, not mine, that you probably should not be driving. But we are grateful. And I invite you now to turn your attention to the Gospel of Luke chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible with you, either electronically or hard copy, there's one in the pew rack close to you. I invite you to open it and to follow along as we make our way through the parable of the rich fool. This is the 13th parable that we have taken time to examine from the pulpit of Paznaz in recent weeks. We have learned that the parables of Jesus are not simply metaphors 
full of symbols that have direct application, but rather they are teaching that is to be provocative. Amy Jill Levine says that if the parable doesn't provoke you and disturb you, you probably haven't yet gotten to its meaning. And it's with that remembrance that we come this morning to this chapter and the parable of the rich fool that Kim read for us a bit ago. I also want to put this in the context of this series because last Sunday was the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And you will recall Jesus speaking to the young ruler who asked the question, and while it's not a parable, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, go give away all that you have. And so it is we come to this place, this teaching this morning that certainly is in the context of the heart of Jesus about what was really important in life, what mattered in life. And we will recall that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He is on his way to the cross. Joan and I were in Jerusalem 10, 11 days ago. We were there during the Feast of the Tabernacles. The busiest time of the year in Jerusalem, it is pilgrimage time. Jewish families and Christian families gathering. And we stood and looked at Golgotha, where Jesus was crucified. And it reminded me that Jesus had a sense of urgency about him when he was teaching these parables on the way to Jerusalem because he knows what is coming and he knows how little time he has left to shape those who will follow him, his disciples whom he is teaching. He knows what they will face. He knows what their questions and challenges and temptations will be. And so he's seeking to shape them and form them as he prepares them for the coming of the Holy Spirit, that spark that adds the flame to the preparation of the church and its full creation and maturity. And he's preparing them for their role of responsibility in their communities of faith that will gather around them. He's preparing them to transmit the values of the kingdom of God to those who will make up this burgeoning movement that will spread around the world. It would do things like interrupt the life of a man who would be named Paul on the road to Damascus. It would interrupt the life of the Apostle John when Jesus said to him on the cross, this is my mother, care for her. And on our vacation, we stood in the Basilica of St. John where John and Mary, the mother of Jesus, ministered and cared for a community of faith outside of ancient Ephesus. We stood 
in the ancient city of Corinth and listen to our guide say to us, the Apostle Paul came into this community where women were treated as objects, where women were part of the temple of Aphrodite and they were expected to provide sexual favors as a part of their worship. And Paul brought the gospel of Jesus and challenged that status quo. And so I would just say to us this morning, as we look at this parable this morning, that the teaching of Jesus in this is going to challenge our own thinking, our own sense of status quo, and it may in fact be unsettling. And so I say to you, if you take issue with what you hear, talk to the Holy Spirit. and ask the Holy Spirit, O presence of God, what would you have me hear? What would you have me know? What would you have me understand? What would you have me change in my understanding of life in the kingdom of God? We also learn in this series that persons represented in the parables are caricatures. They did not actually exist, but their representation serves sometimes as hyperbole and sometimes even as humor to draw our attention to deeper provocative truth that Jesus was seeking to communicate to his disciples. And usually we find in reading the parables and the disciples' questions that sometimes followed, that the disciples usually did not understand what Jesus was trying to say. But the good news is they understood it later. For Matthew, Mark, John, and then later Luke, all captured what they believed to be essential teaching from Jesus, and upon their reflection as they wrote these gospels for our good purpose and use, they began to understand when the Holy Spirit came upon them what Jesus meant by his provocative teaching in his parables. And so they preserved these parables for the benefit of the church that would follow. And so here we are, 2,000 and more years later, hearing the voice of Jesus speak the same truth to us that he spoke to the disciples. I hope that moves you. I hope that somehow grabs your heart and your mind and it marinates in that place of thought and reflection for you to receive this as Jesus speaking the word to you today, and may it be as fresh to us today as it was when first spoken on his way to the cross. This passage is placed in the context of the large crowds that had gathered to listen to Jesus 
he had this great rising popularity on his way to Jerusalem. For he was an unusual teacher with unusual authority when it came to the scripture. And so they had gathered to listen. They waited for every word of his. And out of this crowd, someone calls out to Jesus and says, teacher, and by using that title, recognize his authority. Tell my brother to share my fa his, our family estate with me. And he asked Jesus to become an arbitrator in a family estate dispute. And Jesus declines, but takes the opportunity to speak and extend that invitation into teaching for his disciples. And so in verse 15, Jesus raises the issue of greed. Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. That word greed is a, is a word pregnant with meaning. And it's easy for us to take that word greed and attach it only to wealth or only to the accumulation of possessions. Dr. Joel Green, in his commentary on Luke, says, greed can denote the hunger for advanced social standing as well as the insatiable desire for wealth. In other words, financial wealth is not the only form of greed to be concerned for. And so it is a Jesus caricature of the rich fool was of a man with worldly abundance who was living in a dry, parched land of spiritual scarcity. His spiritual scarcity prompts his self-centered decision-making as well as Jesus' judgment of him as fool. And certainly, as you read through this parable and you listen to the voice of the rich farmer, his logic appeals to us. For most of us would find it agreeable that we would be able to accumulate enough resources over the course of our life that we could set ourselves up for a time of rest after a lifetime of work and we could slow down. So we can't fault the man for wanting to eat, drink, and be merry for it's very much part of our own culture. How many of you, don't raise your hands, well maybe you should. <laughs> How many of us follow the markets? I do. I have a little app on my little genius phone. How many of you were pleased that the government announced an 8.7% increase to Social Security next year? So we can easily understand how attractive the logic of the man is. It appeals to me. And so as we think about sort of this parable, 
and we think about what Jesus says about greed, and yet we recognize that there is this desire in this man that resonates with us to be secure in our accumulation of abundance. But it's not just wealth. It's not just financial wealth, but it's also position and influence. It's privilege. And the list could go on. It's title. I remember in my PhD program at the University of Arizona, one of our faculty said, when you acquire an advanced degree, you join a group of elite. You see, that's position, it's title. Because it has value and it shapes our understanding of who we are and it helps people understand by their own definitions who we are. And so it is that greed takes different forms. It's not just bank accounts. It's not just assets on a balance sheet. It's much, much more. However, our reading of the parable must be done with caution. This is not a parable about successful farmers. This is not a parable about that suggests wealth should be avoided. There's nothing wrong with successful farmers or the, in and of itself the accumulation of wealth. But Jesus' comments about greed are intended by Luke to influence our understanding of the parable just as much as Jesus' comments beginning in verse 22 about God's provision for those who trust him. This is, however, a parable that illustrates one of the challenges of wealth accumulation. It is a parable about one's perspective on the wealth that it's accumulated, that has been accumulated, and its purpose. And it asks us to dwell on the questions in our own lives about our own resources. This parable is also an invitation by Jesus to his disciples to look beyond persons and assets and consider commitments which are evidenced by the impact and thoughts utilized in the applications of the man's knowledge. Notice as the scripture was read and as you even read it as your Bible is open, that as the man speaks, beginning in verse 16 to 19, he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain, and I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. One of my doctoral, prof doctoral professors said to us one time, when you're looking at data, always ask yourself the question, what are they not talking about? What's not present? 
So let me ask you the question, what's not present in the man's self-talk? How many times is a form of the first person personal pronoun used in his self-talk? What's not in evidence in his self-talk? When we understand what's not present, we understand why Jesus judged him a fool. Because when Jesus judged him a fool, he says, tonight, your what? Your soul will be required of you. The rich man's self-talk reveals that the wisdom of fools seeks only what is best for their own purposes without any thought to the impact of their wealth accumulation upon the community around them. Remember that Israel at the time was a subsistence economy. People were scratching out living. And so Jesus teaching this parable to a crowd that understands subsistence and those people in that crowd are saying, here is someone who has all of this and he's hoarding it for himself. When in the village where he lived, how could he have made a difference with what he had created? From the perspective of Luke, the wealthy farmer has failed to comport himself properly with, the respect, with respect to his possessions, for he has not entrusted his life to God and as a consequence has not acted faithfully with respect to his possessions. Joel Green notes, the farmer has sought to secure himself and his future without reference to God. This is the force of the label given by God, fool, used to signify a person who rebels against God or whose practices deny God. Think about Dr. Green's commentary there for a moment. That the distraction of the accumulation of wealth and how it is utilized for the purposes of God can eliminate our claim to life in the kingdom. In other words, we can be so about the accumulation and the results and the outcomes that it ties us up in a way that we have little time, if any time, left for thought of kingdom needs and values. The wisdom of fools promotes the practice of greed, resulting in selfish hoarding in such a way that there is no benefit for the kingdom of God. In fact, many of the people in the kingdom of God have less because someone has figured out how to take it from them.
Joel Green goes further in his characterization of the rich fool. Such persons are not simply those with possessions, but more particularly those whose dispositions are not toward the needs of those around them, whose possessions have become a source of security apart from God, and thus whose possessions deny them any claim to life. Can we understand why Jesus talks about the accumulation of wealth and why he says to his disciples, life is more than an abundance of possessions? In part because he knows as they bring the kingdom of heaven to earth in their life and ministry, they're going to be without most of the time. When Paul arrived in the ancient city of Corinth, he met Aquila and Priscilla and they labored together as tent makers to pay for their existence in that place. I would suggest to us this morning that greed is failing to take God into account as we accumulate possessions. It is to fall into the trap of the first person pronoun that powerfully illustrates that what I possess is mine and thus I have the right to determine what I will do with it. Jesus' parables suggest that a conversion of thinking is in order, that perhaps a conversion of the pronoun would have saved the foolish rich man. Compare the use of the first person personal pronoun of the rich fool to the use of the first person personal pronoun by Jesus in John chapter 10 when he says, I am the good shepherd and I lay down my life for my sheep. There's a great gap in the logic of the rich fool and the logic of Jesus. The wisdom of fools is rooted in the belief that they have sufficient personal knowledge and experience to make decisions about their assets or resources without consulting the one who has created life and made possible the context in which they can accumulate those resources. John Lloyd Ogilvie made this observation in his book, The Autobiography of God. He said, some of us have made success itself our God. We can deify our ideas of prosperity and miss the relationship with the true God, the Lord God who is creator, sustainer, and redeemer of the world does want us to be successful, but according to his goals, plans, and designs. The authentically successful have him and his will as the measurement of their success. Different standard of success. And so it is in this parable that Jesus helps us understand the wisdom of God that is in contrast to the behavior of the rich fool. 
For remember, we're in the context of chapter 22, or chapter 12, and beginning with verse 22 that we did not read this morning, but why I invited you to open your Bibles this morning. Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens, they do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are than birds. Jesus draws a sharp contrast to the parable of the rich fool to his teaching to trust God for provision. These words of Jesus form a spiritually rich decision-making context for the followers of Jesus when thinking about where our resources come from, whose resources they are, and how can we be purposeful stewards of what God has provided. And so in contrast to the wisdom of fools, the wisdom of the righteous seek and trust the wisdom of God in the use of God-provided resources, the people of God understand that whatever they have been allowed to accumulate is theirs to be stewards of rather than owners of. The wisdom of the righteous seek to deploy their God-provided resources for the benefit of the communities they live in as an expression of the kingdom of God. The wisdom of the righteous recognizes and guards against the temptations that a wealth of resources can create. The title of his sermon, The Wisdom of Fools, is like the parable itself. It is a play on words. but it does point us to a significant life question. Who is the source of our wisdom? Ourselves or the creator, sustainer, redeemer God? The passage beginning in verse 22 and following reflects Jesus' wisdom not to worry about accumulating, but to trust God who provides. And so I leave you with two questions this morning. Who are we trusting today for our needs? Or let me make that a little more intimate. Who are you trusting today for your needs? Are we acting faithfully with the resources entrusted to us? When I was a student in college, finishing up my undergraduate degree, I drove an armored truck 
right? Are you kidding me? Yes, I did. Yes, I did. Out of Orange County. I was a relief driver. We had 13 runs, and every one of them different on every day of the week. But one night when we were finishing up after the day was done, the assistant manager of the office there in Orange County said to me, how come you people get tax benefits for giving to the church? I said, you know, my friend, most people I know don't give to the church for the tax benefit. They give to the church because they're stewards of what God has entrusted to them. You see, it's an important question for us to ask. Whose resources are they? Who do they belong to? Do I take into account the voice and interests of God when I think about the accumulation of my resources? And when I say resources again, let me just say it's not just your bank account or your balance sheet, it's your position, it's your influence, it's your privilege. And I hear people say, I don't have any privilege. You do. You do when you begin to say, I have a right to. Don't be afraid of privilege. It's a resource given to you by God for God's good purpose. Use it well. Use it in new ways. Let it become manna for others in a new way. I invite you to stand and receive this. I'm going to ask you one more question. Pastor Brad in the pastoral prayer this morning invited us to hold our hands in certain ways. But I would ask you this morning, is there any area of need in your life in which you are having difficulty trusting God for? Is there any area a resource in your life in which you're having trouble recognizing that you're a steward rather than you're an owner? If you answer that question and acknowledge that yes, there is a place, after the benediction, I invite you to come and spend some time here at this altar. And if you'd like, 
Pastor Marshall will be here to pray with you, and if you don't like, you can pray by yourself. I didn't say if you don't like Pastor Marshall. <laughs> I love Pastor Marshall. But he's available as a resource, both as a pastor, as a prayer partner, as a listening ear. Don't be afraid to confess. It's the path to being avoid, to avoid the label of fool. So receive this benediction. May the Spirit of God bless you with the awareness of God's provision. May the Spirit of God bless you with divine wisdom to be the steward of those resources. May the Spirit of God go with you into your neighborhood as you deploy God's provision. And everyone said, amen. You are dismissed.